Welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with Him. The Bible says this, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. You ready for this? Have you prepared yourself for this? We're in a series called Prepare Yourself. I asked you to prepare yourself for December 31st. I don't know if some of y'all prepared for, you know, today. So uh, you got just a few minutes here. Get yourself ready. I believe God, we're gonna close the series out this week and I believe God is going to speak to us through his word. It's a powerful idea this morning. We're gonna talk about preparing our perseverance. Preparing our perseverance. Everybody say perseverance. In Hebrews 11, we get to the first woman on the list of people of exceptional faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Sarah is the first woman that's mentioned here, even though there have been other women in the biblical narrative in Genesis. Sarah is the first woman on this list. I find it interesting that we finally get here. Because I find it interesting because her role is so integral in the story of salvation. Her role is so integral in the story of faith that they could almost have started with Sarah and then moved to Abraham. As I'll tell you this. There is no Abraham man of faith and there is no Abraham friend of God without Sarah, his wife. Some of you men need to hear that. You are not an island. None of us are. You were not designed to walk this life alone. Even if you're single, you weren't designed to walk this life alone. Our faith, our perseverance, our preparation is activated in community because God strategically places us with other people. He does that on purpose. I want you to hear that statement. Abraham cannot be the father of faith and the friend of God without Sarah. And I'm gonna tell you why. Just give me about... A few minutes up front here because this will dovetail into our ideas of perseverance, but I think this is actually fairly important to the text. You look at Abraham trying to be a man of faith and a friend of God without Sarah. There are these two times in the Genesis narrative that Abraham goes into a land that is ruled by somebody else. And he, apparently, Sarah was quite a looker because Abraham was concerned that the rulers of those nations would see them when they came into the land and they would look at Sarah and think, I want her, I'm gonna take her to be my wife. And if Abraham were to say, well, she's already my wife, they'd say, we can fix that real easy, I can just cut your throat and then she will be single all of a sudden, conveniently for my sake, I can just marry her then. That's just the brutality of antiquity, it's all right, y'all, just read a little history, that's not even the worst thing that you'll read, amen? So Abraham hatches this scheme and says, I'm gonna make sure that they know she's my sister, even though we share a tent, and then they won't kill me, they'll just take her. So twice, rulers of those lands took Sarah, intending for her to become their wives, and twice, God stops that from taking place because Sarah wasn't just a pawn on the board, Sarah was integral to the plan. God said, and there's a beauty here too. God looks at those kings and says, if you marry her, you're inviting my curse upon you. Both of those kings had the good sense to say, all right, we'll back away from this situation. 
I'm afraid the presidents and kings in our land over the last 150 years wouldn't have the same wisdom, to be quite honest with you, but that's just my own political minutia. It means nothing. God even says to Abraham, I believe, my promise to you is bigger than your sin. I want you to hear that too because that's gonna upend some of your theology. My promise, what I have called you to, my purpose for you is bigger and stronger than your sin and I'm not gonna let you make mistakes out of my plan for your life. For some of you, that's the word you needed this morning. Some of you have done some stupid things in your life. Some of you made some monumental mistakes for one reason or another. And can I just tell you something? If God has called you, if the voice of the Spirit is still leading you, can I just tell you, you have not forfeited your plan. You have not forfeited your purpose because God's power is stronger than your stupidity. Some of y'all just need to come on the altar and then leave. That's it, you're done for the day. But there's this other moment, and I'll talk about it a little more at length uh, later, but, but I need to mention it here because... The lowest ebb of Abraham's life comes when Sarah decides to give him her Egyptian maidservant, a a lady named Hagar. Hagar serves Sarah, and so Sarah says, since I can't have the child that God has promised us, we will bring a surrogate into the mix, and you can sire the child of promise through somebody else. And so he tries that. She gives Hagar to Abraham. He says, fine, we'll try this, and the child Ishmael is born. A son is born. Seems to be everything's taken care of. Except God comes and says, that's not what I asked you to do. That's not what I asked you to do. God says, can I tell you? God says, I didn't ask you to fulfill the promise I made to you on your own. I asked you to walk out the process that leads you to the fulfillment of the promise I made you. Sarah is a part of the process. Sarah is not incidental. She is central to the plan of God. Which means Sarah is just as much a part of who we are as Abraham is because when Abraham tried to do it apart from Sarah, God said, that's not the way it works. You need to hear me. Some of the people that we marginalize in our culture, because women at that time in in the world were basically property and incubators. They were treated horribly. They were not valued. And other than in the eyes of God, it seems everybody looked at women and said, You're worthless, just do what you're told and do what you're designed to do and we'll take care of the rest. But God says, I don't see women that way. God says, I don't see people who you marginalize that way. God says, the very people that you think are on the fringes might just be the people who I have called to be the center of what I'm doing in this world. Sarah was not on the edges. Sarah was in the middle of God's plan for this world, of God's plan for our life because we truly are people who come from the lineage of Abraham by faith. Sarah is not marginalized. And I want you to hear this. That entire scene with Hagar and Ishmael is not a story about how God changed the promise. It's a story about how Abraham and Sarah let their perseverance lapse. It's not a story about a changed promise. It's a story about a lapsed perseverance. They got tired of walking in the tension of a moment that they didn't want to wait for. I think I told you several months ago, there's a distance between the promises of God and the fulfillment of God. Seems like I brought Mike and Wayne up here on stage, actually, if I remember correctly, to illustrate that point, that there is a distance between those two things. What God promises you, he will bring to fulfillment, but there's a journey. The problem with that journey is that there's a tension 
in that journey because you know what you've been told, but you have not held what you have been given. Perseverance is the quality that allows us to see the fullness of what God has promised us. So I want you to hear that. There is no other way to walk out the Christian life successfully other than making your mind up that you're not going to stop walking. I read the story about the, the Olympic Games in 1964. They were held in Tokyo that year. And in the Tokyo Games, in the 10,000 meter race, there was a runner from Sri Lanka. His name is Ranatunge Karunananda. Don't act like I didn't practice that. <laughs> Ranatunge Karunananda was running the 10,000 meters for Sri Lanka, and he had made it through the qualifiers, through the heats, and he was in the gold medal race. But by the time the American runner, Billy Mills, crossed the finish line and won gold that year, Karen Ananda was four full laps of the track behind. Turns out the reports later came that Karen Ananda was sick. He was physically ill, and so he was unable to run at the capacity that he had trained to run at, so he was way behind the field. And so even after everyone had crossed the finish line, other than him, he was still way behind. And so, finishing that fourth lap and entering the third lap to go, the people in the stands in Tokyo began to sort of catcall him a little bit, saying, hey, you've already locked up last place. There's no need to prove to us that you're coming in last. We already know it. You're not running for gold. You're just kind of running now. So what are you doing? Just bow out of the race. We've got other events coming. Except Karen Ananda decided that he wasn't going to stop running. And so in obvious physical struggle, he continued putting one foot in front of the other. And by the time he circled that next lap and started on the second lap to go, suddenly people in the stands realized this guy, this crazy person, is not going to stop running this race. We're going to have to sit here and wait on him to finish this race, even though we know he's not going to win. And something unique took place. The people in the stands began to cheer. See, they stopped ridiculing, and they stopped booing, and they started to cheer. Now, I can't even imagine how they could have chanted his name, Ranatunge Karananda. I can't imagine how you get a crowd to do that. I've tried to get crowds to do things. It's almost impossible, much less that. But they began to cheer. They began to egg him on, trying to convince him not to quit, because this man who was coming in last was going to run this race. As he crossed the finish line, finally, minutes off the pace, Thunderous applause erupted in Tokyo in 1964 because Ranatunge Karanananda came in dead last. But he came in. See, what's so beautiful about this story is not just that. It's that the Japanese people were so impressed with Karanananda's story that after 1964, they included his name and his story in the, in the history books that, were taught, that was taught to elementary school kids. So as they cycled through the grades, they didn't talk about Billy Mills who won gold. They talked about Ranatunge Karanananda who barely finished because perseverance unlocks something beautiful in life that can only be unlocked through perseverance. Some of you have fallen, you failed, and you're frustrated. 
keep going. This is not a moment to quit because you're going to see something that you have not seen, not because you won a race, but because you finished a race. Paul said, I'm putting everything behind me so I can press forward to what God has for me. And if I fall, then I get up. And if I stumble, then I keep walking. And if I fail, then I look at him, I say, I'm sorry. And I keep moving forward. See, perseverance creates a dynamic in your spirit that says, no matter what happens, I will not give up on what God has for me. Perfection will never be more important in your life than perseverance. Holiness people get frustrated with that. I grew up holiness, so it's okay. I can talk about us. We act like we're supposed to cast people out when they do something wrong. You do something wrong enough, we won't even talk to you. Except that's not like Jesus. See, if your holiness is defined more by the 18 or 1900s than it is like the first century, then you might be looking at it wrong. See, what God seems to value, it, I believe anyway, and what Sarah's story seems to tell us, is that your unshakable perseverance is far more important to your calling than your imperfect performance. Your unshakable perseverance is far more important to your calling than your imperfect performance. I think, I'm, I'm gonna move on. I, I just, sometimes, I don't know, if you've ever stood in front of people, you just, you realize that you're, you're kind of ankle deep into something and sometimes you want to step out of it and sometimes you want to dive into it. Sarah and Abraham chose a way that God did not ordain. They said, we're going to do it our own way. And God said, no, you're not. But here's what God didn't say. He didn't say, no, nope, that's not going to work. Now I'm going to choose somebody else. He said, no, that's not going to work. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to keep moving forward or are you going to stop and abandon my calling on your life? Because God, God's promise is valid for everybody who won't quit moving forward. What was it? Is it Martin Luther King Jr., I think, the old quote? If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by whatever means necessary, keep moving forward. I've never heard a better description of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Because <laughs> here's the reality. I'm not soft-pedaling sin. Sin is a problem. Rebellion is a problem. It is a frustrating problem to God. And God never takes sin lightly. You know how I know? Because of the cross. If God took sin lightly, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross for our sins. God doesn't take sin lightly. He just considers his promise and calling and purpose over our life to be more valuable and powerful than the sin that might so easily beset us. And so Jesus came to the cross to do something beautiful. He said, if you'll confess your sin, then I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness because I want you to keep moving forward and not derail your own destiny. Perseverance gets you where you're going, not perfection. Now, if you want to be perfect, good. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to support imperfect behavior. But I'm also not going to eliminate people that Jesus wants to welcome in just because we didn't get it all right. I love you. 
And I love God's calling on your life. In Acts chapter two, verse 18, one of the things that Peter quoted when he's talking about the prophecy of Joel, do you remember this? He said, your male servants and your female servants will prophesy. He said the lowest ebb of socioeconomic culture is going to take center stage in the new society that I'm creating by the power of my spirit. I'm going to take people that you never would have listened to because you didn't think they had anything to say. I'm gonna put in their mouth flames of prophetic fire that are going to ignite your heart and speak life into you where there was previously death. He even says this, he says, young men, and now hear me now, I love you, young men. You know, 14 to 28, whatever your age group is, whatever you are, young men, you, you do some stupid things. Your body moves faster than your brain. I know that because I was. But he says, I'm going to give young men vision. I'm going to take the very weakness of youth, and I'm going to exploit it with wisdom and vision. And then he says this, old men, can I tell you? I know, we get tired, don't we? I've now crossed whatever threshold that feels like. I don't know if it has to do with age or just being weary, but I'm there, amen? He says, I'm going to give you dreams. He says, I'm going to take the weakest part of you and I'm going to explode it and give you the best thing that you could ever have. So in the foolishness of your youth, I'm going to give you vision. And in the exhaustion of your age, I'm going to give you dreams and excitement. I'm going to give you what you do not have. I'm going to speak through servants so that the world knows that there's something unique going on. This is exactly what it looks like to persevere because this is what God does. Keep moving forward. So I got three things to tell you aside from what I just told you. Three statements directly from the text, Hebrews 11, 11. First, we see the statement, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. I, I had tried to name this. I said, this is like three truths about perseverance. I also named it, I think, when I was writing it down. Um, one of the titles that hit the cutting room floor was Three Truths for Hanger Honors. Because I think there's got to be a part of us that becomes a hanger honor. When you take a hit, You've got to be willing to get back up and take another hit. You've got to keep hanging on. That's what perseverance is. First, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. Uh, I'll say it this way. What the process of God is producing is what you're designed for. And that value is worth the effort and it's worth the wait. I'm gonna say it one more time. What the process of God is producing is what you are designed for. And that value is worth the effort and it's worth the wait. Look at the text here. It says, by faith, Sarah received power to conceive. Now, those two words, power and conception, are unique because of what they mean in the original language. The word power doesn't mean power to overcome something. The word power there in the language is speaking of ability. She was given the ability to do something. This is not about you know, being able to overcome something, like I can fight through it, I can defeat it. It's really about being given the ability to do something she was previously unable to do. That's what the word means. So by faith, she was given the ability to do something that she could not do before. See, I, th this process that God puts us in the middle of is a process of walking in unseen places, believing that we're going to see what we have not seen, long before the promise is anywhere to be found. She did not have the ability to conceive. Faith, the perseverance of her mind, 
I'm closing my eyes because I'm struggling to make, make sense of all this for you. It's like a big soup, like a stew, basically. And so there's all of these ingredients that are just kind of moving around through my mind and my heart. And, and I want to make it make sense to you because I believe it's powerful. Perseverance is faith in your mind. You choosing not to let the battle in your head overwhelm the promise of your life. The battle in your mind is going to be that I have not seen what God promised me and I can't make it happen. This is so evident with Hagar. She tried to get it done on her own and God said it's not actually done. Even though you did something, you didn't do the thing that I have for you because you can't do it on your own. And the trouble with that is this. We get frustrated when we can't do it on our own. (laughs) When I've got to wait on somebody. My son was three years old, I think. We heard a crash from the bedroom and a yelp. And we realized obviously something was wrong because Asher is accident prone. If you leave him alone for more than a couple hours without something to occupy his time, he is going to build something that's going to burn something down or he's going to break something on his own body. It's just the way he is. I love him. And there's a part of me that loves him for that too. But... So we, we, both of us come running in out of the other room. He has turned a, a five-drawer um, dresser over onto himself. What happened was that, so, so many stories start that way, right? What had happened was he had wanted to get something off of the top, and he was too short. So it just makes perfect sense, right, to create a ladder out of a piece of furniture. And so he opened the bottom drawer, and he put his foot up on it, and then he had to open the next one, and he put his foot on it, but at some point, the weight ratio wasn't going to hold, and so his little body brought all of that back on him, and so all the drawers opened up, and he hit the floor, and it fell over top of him. And as we came in and we looked, it's the hand of God alone, truly, because he had fallen right next to his bed, and all of those drawers had come out, but none of them had touched him. The top of the dresser had landed at the edge of the bed, creating a little cocoon where he could be underneath all of that weight, and it didn't kill him. Could potentially have killed my son. All because he didn't want to wait and ask for help. So you might not be turning dressers over on yourself, but don't you tell me, don't you dare tell me, you're not trying to do some things on your own that God's power alone can accomplish in your life. By faith, she received ability. By faith, she received power. By waiting on the timing and the power of God. And I'm just telling you, in your mind, you are going to be tempted to say, and I could preach the rest of the day, I'm sorry, but, uh, and I won't, just fair warning. Um, in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, I go back to this all the time because this text is so powerful to me. Satan's temptations to Jesus We're all about having what Jesus was going to have anyway, but he was just going to get it faster if he bowed before the enemy. Do you see that? Jesus was going to eat bread again, and so Satan says, well, why don't you just turn the stones into bread and you can have it right now because I know you're hungry. Jesus was going to rule the nations, but he said, you know what? If you'll bow down to me, I'll give them to you now so you don't have to go to the cross. Jesus was going to be rescued by his father 
And Satan says, well, just jump off the top of the temple now and let the angels catch you because that's what the word of God says. See, every temptation that Satan brought before Jesus himself was a temptation of timing. Get what you are supposed to have, but get it sooner and without walking the process that your father has aligned for you. This is how the enemy will attack your mind. Because the promises of God create a longing, a hunger. But when the fulfillment of God takes more time than you want it to take, you will start to think, how can I manufacture an answer in this moment? How can I do this faster and more efficiently in my own life than God is? Because apparently God is taking too much time. That was the downfall of Saul. I could go on and on with example after example from the scriptures. But but here's the thing. The process, this is, the process is just as important as the promise. You know, you know what Hungry Jack syrup is, right? It's the cheap syrup on the bottom shelf. It's the cheap syrup that they give in like these three gallon vats so little kids can grab them and put them in the buggy. They, they strategically put them down there. So you, you can look on the syrup area. Now, again, I'm pro-syrup, okay? So please don't, don't hear. No animosity. But there's the, there are these huge things, plastic jugs of syrup, that you can pull out and get for really cheap. It tastes great. In fact, I mean, after the pancake's gone, I'll spoon that stuff off the plate and eat it straight, okay? That's how in love with syrup I am. But on the top shelf generally, or somewhere separate, there are these much smaller bottles that are like three times as much. Those smaller bottles are real maple syrup bottles. Can I tell you, I looked this up and this was fascinating to me. This is how real maple syrup is made. The workers venture deep into the woods, into places called sugar bushes, and they use hand drills to make small holes in the trunks of maple trees. Then they put a metal tube that's called a spile into that hole, into each tree, and they hang a bucket onto each of those spiles, and sap begins to drip into the buckets. The sap that falls into those buckets is thin and clear and watery, not like the syrup that we actually eat. So on a good day, 50 trees will yield 30 gallons of this sap, okay? But here's where it gets better. After they have the buckets full, they empty them into large kettles that sit over an open fire, and they bring the sap to a slow boil. As it boils, the water content is reduced and the sugars are concentrated. Hours later, it is developed into a rich golden brown color full of flavor. But then it's strained over and over again to remove any impurities. And so here's what happens. 30 to 40 gallons of sap will produce one gallon of syrup. It takes forever to make real maple syrup. It is painstaking. It is people heavy. It requires a lot of time, effort, and energy to make real maple syrup. But hear me now. That's exactly why it's worth more. (laughs) Some of y'all are starting to get it now. Some of you are hearing what I'm saying. The promise, God help me, the promise is not what brings the value. The process brings the value. 
The process that you walk out, I fell down here, but I got back up and I took another step. And I had to trust God that he really forgave me. I failed here and I had to look at him and say, I'm not good enough. And he says, I know you're not, but I am. Keep walking. And so I take another step. It's the process over and over and over and step by step by step that brings the value that God has for you into your life. When you don't walk out the process, you're not getting the promise. You're getting the cheap counterfeit imitation that might satisfy you for a moment, but steals all of the richness of your life. The process is what creates what God is developing you into. The promise is just a goal that you're headed toward. The process is what develops you like God wants you to be developed. Too many cheap Christians... Too many people who've treated grace like it's an inexpensive commodity, like it does not matter, have treated the forgiveness of God like it cannot really save you, who have treated the cross like it's just this thing we wear around our neck instead of the thing that we take up and walk with. Perseverance means that when I start this journey, I'm never going to quit, not until I get to the end, because I know that he's working in me a beautiful glory, that I am becoming something that I could not have become without that process. The value that God has called you to, the worth that you actually have, will never be realized without the process. Sarah and Abraham had to, de- had to determine that they were going to walk the process. Even though the process meant failure and frustration and falling down, they had to walk the process. Let me say one more thing and I'll I'll move. The second two points are shorter, I think, if I remember correctly, who knows? (laughs) The second word there, foundation, says she was given the ability to conceive, except that that word for conceive is used 11 times in the New Testament and 10 of them, it's translated foundation. Only once is it translated conception, and it's here in Hebrews 11. I find it interesting that what we call conception, God calls foundation. See, the place that we believe life comes out of is what God actually sees as foundations. What we think foundation is generally is a very solid, static, firm, immovable place that we can stand on and know it will never move. What God thinks of foundation, he says foundation is actually like a fertile field that where if you plant something in it, something will grow up out of it. The foundation that God actually wants us to build our life on is not a firm foundation that never moves us. It's a place that will grow us. She received the ability to grow. She received the ability to have her life on a foundation that was going to produce aliveness. The foundation that God wants for your life is not a foundation that never sees you go through struggle. It's a foundation that says when you are in the middle of struggle, can can I tell you, when you are the seed that is put into the ground and everything is dark around you, that you're going to spring up out of it because the foundation you're in is fertility and growth and beauty and joy because the promise of God to you is not to leave you in the ground but to produce fruit through you. That is the foundation of our life in Christ. It's not a place where nothing ever moves and it's very rigid and static. It's a dynamic place of beauty and joy and richness and aliveness. Hmm. I'll move on. Second phrase. It says, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, listen to this, even when she was past the age. (laughs) Can I get a witness? 
Even when she was past the age. Thank you for those of you who are honest. I appreciate y'all. Thank you. The reality of your weakness may be true, but it's not truer than the power of God's promise. Sarah had to persevere even when everything in her life pointed to an expired window of opportunity. I, you ever feel like, you're, I, I asked you before, I, there are times that I just feel done, like overdone, crispy, like I was left on the grill just a little bit too long. And the older I get, the more I'm amazed at people who lie to me and tell me they feel young when they're older than me. <laughs> Like, I appreciate your optimism, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. The older I get, the older I feel. Like, I don't know if that's true for you. Like, I, you, you can tell yourself all these great stories about how everything's okay. I don't know, but, but just the older I get, the more I creak a little bit. Like, I'm, I'm not nearly as quick as I once was in any way at all. Like, mentally, physically, my, I'm, I'm just slow, man. I just, I feel myself grinding to a halt most days, and I've got to drink more coffee and take more Tylenol. Like, that's just the way it is. Like, uh, but what I love about this part of the verse is it, the Bible does not say that she was just old in her thinking. <laughs> like the Bible has no problem saying, man, she's too old to be carrying a kid on her hip, much less in her womb. She missed it. She missed her chance. Windows closed. Opportunity of a lifetime, gone. Can't have any more because she is past the age. <laughs> the text assumes that physical reality is actually physical reality. How shocking. But this is important. God will not lie to you about the reality of your life. God will not, oh heavens, there are so many expressions that I've, heard over 20 years of blue collar work that would probably be inappropriate from the stage. But God will not blow smoke in your face. How about that? <laughs> Some of y'all have worked those jobs. That's why you're smiling right now. He will not blow smoke in your face and tell you a lie when the truth is otherwise. If you're too old, then you're too old. If you're too slow, then you're too slow. If you're dealing with struggles, and you're really dealing with struggles. If there's some kind of inability or disability in your life, then that, it's not that that's not true. The Bible never says it's not true. The Bible will not misrepresent reality. And I'll tell you why. Because the truest thing about you is not the truth that you see around you. It's the truth of the promise of God over you. See, I, I think I've talked about this before. I know I've talked about it over the years, and, and it's one of those things that has really helped me. The truth of my life exists right here, and it's real. But there's a truth that God has about my life that supersedes the truth of my life. doesn't make this truth that I see any less true. It just means that God has the kind of truth that trumps my truth. See, he doesn't say that she's young at heart and she's going to be okay and she's just exaggerating her age. He says she's past the age. She's old. She's dusty. The factory is shut down. The workers all went home. Okay? That's exactly what the Bible says in, my own, in the vernacular of our time. All right? What it says, though, is that even though 
<laughs> she had missed her opportunity because the truth of her life was that her body was too old. The truth of God over her life was that the promises of God are always stronger than the truth of our reality. And so when God's truth comes into collision with your truth, his truth will always win out in that contest. Hey, my truth and your truth is an assessment of the reality that we observe. But God's truth is a declaration of creativity that must be obeyed. Oh, that's actually really good right there. I was very happy with that line when I typed it out. That is spirit-led. I'm going to read it again because y'all didn't appreciate me right there. (laughs) My truth and your truth is an assessment of the reality that we observe. But God's truth is a declaration of creativity that must be obeyed. So God looks at Sarah and says, it's true, you're too old to have a baby. But it's also true that I told you, you're going to have a baby. And because I told you, you're going to have a baby, my truth of creativity must be obeyed by your body that seems to be too far gone to actually carry a baby. Now, Sarah is going to do what in chapter 18? Laugh. That's exactly right. Because you know that when somebody tells you you're about to run a marathon and you're 75 years old and you've never trained and you prefer to eat Little Debbie's, then you're going to know. You're going to say, Pop, that's, that's great. That's a good one, God. I'm not even going to enter the race because that's stupidity right there. And I'm too old for that kind of stupidity, God. What are you asking me to do? She laughs. She falls. Abraham in chapter 17 falls on his face laughing because God says, now it's time. They say, why in the world have you waited so long to tell us it's time? We were actually trying to have kids kids 15 years ago you didn't show up then but now that we're all dusty and dried up this is when you show up and tell us it's time to conceive what in the world are you doing God do you not own a watch God did you lose your calendar God did you forget who we were God have you been talking to another couple and you just misplaced the message what is it that happened because this doesn't make any sense and God says my truth over your life is stronger than your truth in your life and if I tell you to have a kid then your womb will open up and if I tell you to start a ministry I don't care how old you are, you start it because I'll anoint it and I'll bless it. And if I tell your family's going to stay together, then stop trying to split it apart because I'll bring it back together in my way. I don't care what your truth is. My truth always overshadows yours. Yeah, give him an act of praise. In 1 Kings 18, there's this story. It's the last part, the last section of 1 Kings 18. And the prophet Elijah tells Ahab, there's rain coming, son. And he says, all right. And so he says, get in your chariot and outrun the rain. Now, chariot, probably pulled by horses, some sort of animal. Now, there's a reason they call it horsepower, okay? Wayne, I know you're in shape, but they don't call it Wayne power for a reason. Because horses are faster. They don't call it Chris power because horses are faster, okay? We all understand that horses are faster than people. Except in that text, when Ahab has a head start in a chariot pulled by horses, somehow God lays his hand upon the life of Elijah and he outruns the chariot. The truth is that men are slower than horses. 
But God's truth in that moment was, I'm going to get you there faster than anything else in this world can get you there. And my truth overshadows the truth of your life. You might have thought you were slow, but I have made you fast. You might have thought you were weak, but I have made you strong. You might have thought you were poor, but I have made you rich. You might have thought you were alone, but I have given you community. You might have thought you were lost, but I have called you found. You might have thought that you were broken, but I have made you whole. You might have thought that you were destroyed, but I have brought victory into that place of destruction over your life. God looks at your truth and does not say it's not true. He says, my truth is stronger. My truth is bigger. My truth is greater. My truth is more important than your truth in your life because my truth is a word of creativity over you. Mm. (laughs) If we're going to prepare ourselves for what he wants to do in us, we're going to have to start believing again in places that we were tempted to abandon because we assessed it with our own eyes and said, this is true. I've prayed before, it hasn't happened. I've invited them, they haven't showed up. I've spoken and nothing worked. But God says the way that you assess things is not the way that I assess things. Mm -hmm. Perseverance says hope can exist in a place of hopelessness because the word of God can turn anything around. So listen to me, pray another prayer for that situation. Encourage that prodigal again. Be grateful that you've received an answer again. Worship again just for who he is, not for what he's done. Grab tightly again to his promise over your life, even when you haven't seen the results of it. Be generous before your your harvest arrives. Perseverance is not easy at first because it requires believing something that you have not seen. But the scriptures tell us that perseverance creates the kind of environment that sees what it has been believing for. I'm gonna finish this point. Let Let me... read you one thing. Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite writers. I don't agree with him all the time theologically, but I I love the way that he puts things. And he's talking about this scene when Abraham and Sarah laugh at God. And, And he says this. He says, Sarah was never going to see 90 again. And Abraham had already hit 100. And when the angel told them that the stork was on its way at last, both of them almost collapsed. Genesis 17 says, Abraham laughed until he fell on his face. And then a chapter later, Sarah stood cackling behind the tent door so the angel wouldn't think she was being rude as the tears streamed down her face. And when the the baby finally came, they even named him Laughter. It's what Isaac means in Hebrew because obviously no other name would do. Sarah and her husband had had plenty of hard knocks in their time and there were plenty more of them still to come. But at that moment, listen closely, this is beautiful. At that moment when the angel told them they'd better start dipping into their old age pensions for cash to build a nursery, the reason they laughed, hear me now, hold on to this. The reason they laughed was that it suddenly dawned on them that the wildest dreams they'd ever had had not been half wild enough. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) See, when you're walking the process of God for your life, what happens is in the middle of that thing, when you are tempted to fall into lament, you realize that the promise of God still hangs over you, and so you begin to laugh. Oh, man, we need more laughter in the church. We need more people who come underneath the umbrella of God's promise and say, even though it doesn't make any sense, you know, it just... Yeah, there, there's something, when I was younger especially, I'm on stage a lot, so I don't get to do it anymore. But when you start to laugh in church at something you're not supposed to laugh at, and then you look at somebody and they start laughing too, like, you're trying to cover up because you don't want to be rude, 
But there's just something about laughing in church. It's hard to stop laughing when you start laughing in church, especially when it's the wrong time to laugh. So I just wonder sometimes if maybe in the midst of our tears there shouldn't be some laughter as well. If maybe in the middle of our lament we shouldn't feel a smile creep across our face, not because we've seen something come to its resolution, but because we know the God who can speak life into places of death. And I think what happens when we start to laugh, and I'll I'll move on, I'm just about done. What happens when we start to laugh is that we realize that the dreams we had for our life aren't half as grandiose as the dreams God had for our life. He starts to heal our expectations and our ambitions, not because we dreamed too far or too much, but because we dreamed way too little. See, Abraham and Sarah were fine having a kid at 60 even. Said, yeah, God, we can put that together because that works for us. But then when you start to think about them having a kid at 190 years old, then you start to realize the dream we had, that wasn't half as crazy as what you're talking about, God. And you begin to laugh, not because you disbelieve it, but because you're starting to actually believe in what he's capable of. Hmm. <laughs> There's so many of us who have lost our ability to laugh because we feel like every time we come to the Lord or we come to a place in life, we have to weep over it. I just think sometimes we've got to listen closer to his voice and let it change us. Let it transform us. Doesn't he say, I'll turn your mourning into dancing and I'll trade your beauty. I'll trade your beauty for ashes. Do we still believe that? Because I think some of us are coming to altars and some of us are coming into prayer closets and some of us are just coming into our cars overwhelmed thinking, I've got to trade ashes for ashes and mourning for more mourning. But that's not how God does things. He speaks and laughter emerges. Finally, Donna, so if you would, please. Bringing her up is how I give you all false hope. Third, it says this, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age because she considered him faithful who had promised. I want you to see how simple it becomes for Sarah. The power to persevere is not a question of how, but it's a matter of who. The power to persevere is not a question of how, but it's a matter of who. The writer of Hebrews says that she walked by faith, even through the reality of impossibility, not because she had all the answers, but because she knew the God who was faithful. If we ever try to base our faith on our energy, or our ability to believe, then we have lowered our buckets into a dry well. 
can I just give you permission to not be strong enough on your own? Some of y'all have imagined yourself as Atlas carrying the world on your shoulders, keeping everything running. Stop lying to yourself. You're not that strong. You might be that stubborn, but you're not that strong. See, there's only one who's strong enough to maintain faith in our life, and that's the one who is faithful. And I just think maybe, maybe there was a part of Sarah after Hagar and Ishmael in the midst of that laughter that just realized I can't do this anyway and if he's going to do it then I'm going to laugh all the way to the nursery because when you get put in a place where God's really the only one that can accomplish what you've been longing for you're actually in the right place Jesus said in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church because we hold what? So the church is built on the revelation of the identity of Jesus. If you look back through that text, Matthew 16 says that upon this rock I will build my church. The rock that he's talking about is the revelation of who Jesus is and what he would accomplish at the cross and at the empty tomb, okay? So he says that a church that is built on that cannot be overtaken by the gates of hell. Now, Here's what I'll tell you. A church that's built on anything else can absolutely be overtaken by the gates of hell. A life that is built on the sufficiency of Jesus can never be overcome no matter how many demons come after you because what you are a part of and what has given you strength and what has brought you to where you are is not your own strength but his. Jesus is the answer. But if your life is built on something else, and my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I think you could call that faith as well. My faith is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My victory is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. All of these things are rooted and grounded in his power to overcome things, not in mine. And Sarah got to the place where she simply had to say, it's obvious, God, that I don't have what everybody's calling faith because we've messed this up at least three times. So I'm just going to have to look at you and say, if you want to get it done, then I need you to do it because I can't. And I know you can, but I don't know when you're going to. And now that you tell me when you're going to and it doesn't make any sense, I guess we're just going to have to try anyway because I don't know what else to do at this point. Can I tell you something? God will wear down your doubts with his faithfulness. <laughs> God will wear down your doubts with his faithfulness. He will be so good to you in moments when you didn't think he was there that in the end, you'll realize that he's really taking you somewhere because when you look back across your journey, you realize that in the moments that you should have tried to carry yourself and couldn't, you were still carried. His faithfulness has been with you and walked with you. And so it will change your opinion of how you walk out the journey of your life. Would you stand? I'm going to close with a story like I tend to do. I love this story. I'd read it a few years ago. Nine one one dispatcher in in twenty nineteen, actually January 29th of twenty nineteen, not almost uh, three years ago to the day. Nine one one dispatcher named Antonia Bundy answered this call from an eleven year old boy. 
he called and he said, I need help. And so she had to assess whether, you know, what the need was, who to dispatch, who to call. Well, it turned out that the need was much less about some kind of impending danger or doom. And it was really that he had had a bad day at school and had some homework that he couldn't get done. And so he called 911 to say, I need help. Now, nine times out of 10, the dispatcher would have said, this line is not for playing around on, hang up the phone and do not call it again unless there's a real emergency. Except that day, Antonia Bundy says that she was just weary of the doom and destruction. And she was willing to take this particular call because she needed a break from everything else. And so she asked him, what's been going on? He said, it was a tough day at school. And now I'm sitting here with this homework and I can't figure it out and I can't get it done and I'm just tired of doing it. And she said, well, tell me what, what's in front of you. And so it was, it was math, which I can, honestly, the kids, the kindred spirit to me, I understand completely. But Antonia Bundy was actually really good at math. She said later on when she was interviewed, all through high school, it was her favorite subject. So she said, well, tell me what's on the page. We'll work through it together. And so they worked through problem after problem after problem together. And she finally got him to where he was finished with his homework. And she said, is there anything else I can do? And this is what he said. In a moment of clarity, this 11-year-old boy said, I'm really sorry for calling you, but I just needed help. And she said, and this is what captured my imagination and my heart when I first read it. She said, you're fine. We're always here to help. And in my mind, it's just so beautiful to me to think It's such a profound part of perseverance in our faith to say, when I've fallen apart and when I've failed and when I can't get done what I know I need to get done, God is not looking at us from a distance saying, just work harder. When we call out to him and say, I can't do this, he looks at us and says, can I just tell you? I know it's not in the scriptures, it's in a 911 call, but I believe it's absolutely the spirit of what the spirit of God does. He says, it's fine. I'm always here to help. I think we try and go it on our own so much because we think we're impressing God by our ability to do things on our own. That doesn't impress God at all. God's not impressed by you doing things on your own. You're not like up on a trophy shelf higher than everybody else who's received his grace because you figured out how to read the whole Bible through in six months, but you still hate everything about your life. He's not asking you to be superhuman. He's telling you that he's available. It's fine. He's here to help. And what we've been talking about the last four weeks, if we're going to prepare our environment to be a place of pleasure for God by the end of the year, if we're going to prepare our trust so that we walk in belief no matter what comes in front of us, if we're going to prepare our journey to walk the pathway that he has for our life, and if we're going to prepare to persevere, it's going to require us to realize that this is not so much about how as it is about who. This is not about technique. It's about making that call and saying, I can't do this on my own. Can I tell you something? You're going to hear, it's fine. I'm always here to help. You have not been called 
to walk this life by yourself. He gave you a community. He gave us a cloud of witnesses. And he gave us himself. This is why Jesus said, it's good that I go away so I can send a helper to all of you. All of us walk with the Holy Spirit of God in our life so he can say when we're in the lowest ebb and lowest moment in the most difficult time, we can look at him and say, I can't do this on my own. And he's going to look at us, not angry, and say, it's fine. I'm always here to help. If you're holding on for God, instead of holding on to God, then you're missing the opportunity to tap your most valuable resource. I'll say it one more time, I'm gonna pray. I don't need to say anything else. I don't even know what else I wrote down, but that's enough. If you're holding on for God to impress him, instead of holding on to God because he's your strength, then you're doing it wrong. You think you're going to impress the Father when Jesus has done what he's done? This isn't about impressing anybody. This is about making it. This is about being last place in the 10,000 meters, but refusing to quit running because they didn't send you to this place to win. They sent you to finish. And if you don't think you can finish, just listen to that cloud of witnesses as they begin to cheer you on. And listen to your father as he says, if you need me to come alongside you and carry you, it's fine. I'm always here.